We will go ahead and start turning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. You know, throughout the week, I oftentimes will get a lot of people who will uh, pose questions to me. And let me say, first of all, I really do enjoy that. It, it, it causes me to oftentimes think about uh, other sections of Scripture that I wasn't thinking about throughout the week. Uh, and so, a lot of times people will ask questions on things that they're not really sure about. Now, there are other times when people are extremely hesitant to ask questions for a number of reasons. Uh, sometimes they're a little intimidated, or sometimes they really just want to study the topic on themselves. And so for each of us to be able to go back and to uh, study any topic with understanding, for us to get understanding about any of these topics, what we need to do is to occasionally go back and really just spend a little bit of time on the basics. I was thinking a little bit about this. This is something that we do uh, quite often throughout our regular lives. I know at my uh, secular workplace, I oftentimes will have people who will ask me questions uh, regarding the, the machines, the product, and so forth. Uh, and let me say this, 90% of the time I get asked questions at work, the answers are actually already provided. If they would literally just go to their paperwork, whether it's the machine paperwork or the quality paperwork, 90% of the time it's there. I, if they would just read, they would understand it. But here's the thing, a lot of times people don't know where to go for the information. And so again, it's important for us to go back and to spend some time on the basics. The sermon today actually is when you read, you may understand. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 as we begin to get a really a, a breakdown on biblical authority. But we're going to do it in such a way, hopefully, that it really just... It cements it and makes it very common sense. Follow along with me, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you were, how that by revelation, let me pause for a minute, revelation means that something is being revealed to Paul, who is an apostle. He says how that by revelation... He made known unto me, so it's being revealed directly to Paul, again, this is inspiration taking place, the mystery. As I wrote before in few words, so Paul, he's addressed this topic that he's talking about, whereby when you read, when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Let me pause again. So it was revealed to Paul, Paul recorded it, and then Paul says, if you would read this, you may understand. Let's continue on in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there were some people that didn't know about this revelation, but there are others who, since this has been recorded, they do know about it, right? That happens all the time when we're talking about topics. Some people just never studied it. Here he shows there are people that understand this topic. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. He's talking about it was prophesied in the Old Testament both Jew and Gentiles would be in this one body, right? The church. Now, a lot of people didn't know that, but they should have known this. Paul had received it by inspiration, and he had told them. He says, and partakers of his promise in Christ. How's that going to be? Take, how's that going to take place? How can we know about this promise? Notice this, by the gospel. Now, do you see why he said, now, when you read, you may understand. He's talking about reading the gospel, okay? So what do we learn as we begin to start off on understanding biblical authority? Well, very first we understand that the writers of our New Testament, they were inspired. Things were being revealed to them. They were speaking and writing by inspiration 
And he says that when you read this, you may understand. All right, so not only were the speakers and the writers inspired, he makes it very clear that when we read the inspired word from them, we as followers of Christ, we can understand what that revelation was. I mean, if you guys have ever heard someone say, the, the Bible is just so complicated, I really don't think that I can understand it. Paul says, when you read, ye may understand. Now, here's the key word, you may. There are a lot of times where people read the Bible and they don't understand. And there are other times where people read the Bible and they do understand. So what am I saying? Well, you can understand it or you can misunderstand it. I have gone to uh, presses before where people were reading through their instructions and they were saying, this is what it's saying. And I'm like, no, you read it, but you misunderstood it. Let me go back and cover it again, right? That's what Paul is getting us to understand. Sometimes we understand it, sometimes we may not, but we can, we can or may if we'll go back and read. Now that's the hard part. How many of you guys will know people who claim to be Christians who've never opened up their Bible in the last month, two months? It happens all the time. And then when you have conversations with them, you wonder within yourself, why is it they don't understand? Well, they're not reading. I want you to notice this. Paul never says that we need to go back and interpret what was written. He simply just says, read it. And why is that? Well, the reason is because the Bible is fact, and it does not need any interpretation. Let me, let me try to explain it in a little bit simpler way. There are a lot of people that might misunderstand mathematical equations. And you can go back and you can show them how it is you work out a mathematical problem and they, they still may not understand it. Let's use a real simple one. We could again cover two plus two and someone may think that's five. Well, the answer is not five. They've misunderstood it. Their interpretation of what two plus two should equal is incorrect. And that happens a lot with the Bible. Why? Well, the reason is many people don't understand biblical authority. And yet if they would read, they could understand. So in a nutshell, as we start to get into this, to understand biblical authority, what we need to understand is this. First, we've got to accept the Bible as inspired. We've got to accept its teachings as inspired and exactly for what they are, which is the will of God for man in all aspects of morality, including worship. We literally can read it and take it for what it says. It's, it's not complicated. So what is the source of religious authority? That is an important question. That's actually something that we should probably discuss before we really have any religious discussion with anybody around us. Uh, if they don't believe that the Bible is inspired and we believe that the Bible is inspired, do you think that we will both derive to the same answer regarding moral issues? No, the answer is not, we're not gonna come up with the same answers. So what is the source of religious authority? Let's begin to break down what it's not and then let's see what it is. First of all, it is not of ourselves. Go over to Jeremiah 10, 23. Jeremiah 10, 23. And we have recorded, again, by inspiration, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now, here's what's interesting. The majority of people, at least, that I come into contact with are willing to admit that they are not the source of morality for this world. The majority of people I come into contact with, for the most part, believe that there is God and that there is some type of morality. Now, we may vary on what that source of, or what the uh, extent of that morality is, but the majority of people realize they don't, they don't come up with morality. Let me say this, there's no church of Sean. If there was a church of Sean, I could come up with my own sense of morality for that church, but here's the problem, 
Christ is actually the head of the church. And so Christ would supersede anything I came up with anyway. So again, I am not the source of morality. It doesn't come from ourselves. There are a lot of people who do accept the New Testament as the New Testament as the source of morality. Yet you have others who will not. You have people who are atheists, you have people who are humanists, and you have people who, for whatever reason, simply don't want to follow the Bible as it has been given to us. And so, they don't accept the Bible as their source of morality. In a sense, what they think is, is either they or somebody else is the source of morality. I don't think that's new for anybody today. Let me give you a good example today. And I'm going to use a topic that uh, is going to be extremely touchy. But I'm going to do this for a reason, and then I'm, I'm going to give you a poll that's actually about 20 days old. A good example for people who think that they themselves or someone else is the sense of morality would be to go back and look at anybody today who claims to be a Christian and yet is supportive of the LGBTQ lifestyle. Or anybody who would be supportive of abortion. Or anybody who would claim to be a Christian and be supportive of fornication. Listen to Romans 1, 26 and 27 before I give you these poll results. Romans 1, 26 through 27. So Paul writes, again, by inspiration, he is an apostle receiving revelation directly through the Holy Spirit. He says this, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. All right, so these are not acceptable. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So you've got women who are fornicating with women. He then goes on, and likewise, it's not just the women, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves recompense of their heir which was meet. Now let's go to the poll. This poll is about 20 days old, at least the article that uh, cites from this poll of 2020 was 20 days old. A poll last month of U.S. citizens showed that 70% of people here in the United States thought that premarital sex or fornication was acceptable. Almost 70% believed that homosexuality was acceptable. Now, if we go back to the other previous polls, you'll find that somewhere around 70-some percent of Americans also claim to be Christians. Let that sink in for a minute. 70-some people... 70-some percent of people claiming to be Christians, and we, here we find 70% of the United States citizens think that homosexuality is okay, fornication is okay. What does that tell me? Well, it tells me that they're basing their sense of morality on themselves, their own desires, their own thoughts, their own opinions, or something else, but they're not basing it on the Word of God. They think they can determine basically what's right or wrong. Let's notice this. The source of religious authority is not based on our conscience. Here's the problem with our conscience. My conscience is not always reliable. And neither is yours. I mean, how many of you guys are willing to honestly admit that at some point, as of recently, you've done something that you know that the Bible would say is sin? We've all done it. And sometimes you don't even know you do it at first, and it doesn't even bother your conscience. Listen to Acts 23.1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. We have to go back and remember that Paul, prior to this, was going out and persecuting the church. He was making havoc of the church. And it didn't bother his conscience at all. So Paul is telling us that just because something doesn't bother our conscience doesn't mean that our moral compass isn't wrong. 
Again, let me go back to the poll that we saw. 70% of Americans who didn't have a problem with homosexuality, who didn't have a problem with fornication. And you can take two, two uh, people, let's say they're unmarried, uh, and they don't have any type of a conscience issue be between uh, them having sexual intimate acts prior to being mar married. And yet the thing is, is this doesn't override God's will for man for the marriage bond or the covenant and its blessings. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 3. And this goes back to the poll. There are people who say, yeah, I don't have a problem with fornication for uh, those who are men and women, or even for fornication of those who are women and women and men and men. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 3. Biblical authority. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. All right, that's how a man is supposed to prevent fornication. He's supposed to get married where? Within the marriage bond. That's acceptable. And let every woman have her own husband. The women fall under the same regard. He then goes on, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. So what do we learn? Well, intimacy is only acceptable within the marriage bond. It doesn't matter what those 70% of people think is acceptable. They need to go back to biblical authority and ask, what does the Bible allow? And then we learn very clearly that each husband and wife are to take care of their spouse's intimate needs. What's the point of this? He's showing us here how that we can avoid fornication and also help to prevent adultery, right? Your conscience is only as right as the foundation upon which it's based. Let's notice this. The source of religious authority is not from men. Go on over to uh, Matthew chapter 15. I don't normally do this, but what I'm going to do to try to help keep the sermon a little bit shorter, I'm going to read verses 3, read 6, and then read 9. Again, Matthew 13, or sorry, 15, verse 3, 6, and 9. Notice what we find here. This is Jesus speaking. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? All right, we got two things there. We got the commandments of God, we got the traditions of men. Ask yourself, which one do you think is more important? I wish everybody today would ask that question. Let's move to verse 6. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Notice this. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. They're following man's, they're following man's teaching, and actually they're not following the Bible. Now notice verse 9. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What's Jesus' point? Man at no time is permitted to come in and to change God's laws. He's not permitted to go in and to intermingle man's laws with God's laws. And yet we have that happening all the time. Let me go back and look in the, we'll call it Christendom, many groups claiming to be Christians. And let me point out a couple of things. I'll start with the group I was raised in, Catholics. Do Catholics read or follow a Bible? Well, very little, but they do have a Bible. But let's notice this, they also have the catechism. Let's ask Jesus' question again. He says, Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Why is it that the Catholics are making of no effect the Bible by their tradition? But it's not just the Catholics. We go over and we look at the Baptists. Do the Baptists use the Bible? Of course they do, but they also have their, their Southern uh, or their Baptist manual, the Hickox manual. Let's go back and look what Jesus says. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. How about the Methodists? Same thing. They use a Bible, and yet we know that they have the Methodist book of discipline. What's Jesus say? Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your 
tradition. The problem is, is they don't understand biblical authority. They have taken men's ideas, they've placed them into books, and they use them alongside of the Bible. Now, here's the thing. We learn very quickly from Jesus' words that this leads to vain worship and a vain life because they're trying to live according to both the Bible and man's teachings, and oftentimes they're intermingling the two. Now, here's what some say. Some say, well, you know, a lot of the things that you'll find in the Baptist manual, they don't really, they, they don't really uh, dis, disagree with the Bible, right? They, these things actually agree with the Bible. Here's the thing. If these things already agree with the Bible, do you even need them? No, you don't. They agree with the Bible, so get rid of them. What about the things that they're, they're reading from that disagree with the Bible? Well, if it disagrees with the Bible, knowing I can't add to or take away, I don't even want them. Listen to Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. All right, don't add to my words. It goes on. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That is exactly what the Jews were told. Don't add to the word. Don't take away from the word. Same thing Christians are told. Why? Because our Old Testament was inspired, is inspired, and our New Testament is inspired. We don't have any right to go back and to add to or take away. Most of you are familiar with this. Let's go over to Luke 6.46. Ask yourself about people today who claim to be Christians. Are they adding to and taking away from God's Word? It happens all the time, and yet we can go to Luke 6.46 and we read, And why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? I want to go back to that 70% poll. 70% of people who claim to be, many of them claim to be Christians, say I don't have a problem with homosexuality, and I want to go, why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not the things that he says? You've got people who claim to be Christians who reject the necessity of baptism. When Jesus mandates baptism in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. And I want to ask him, why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not the things that he says? And we could continue on with many of the words of Christ or of the words of the apostles whom he appointed, which we already saw were inspired and people will see it and say, I don't think it's necessary. And again, I want to ask them, why do you call him Lord, Lord, and do not the things that he says? Here's the reason, guys. They don't understand biblical authority. But if they would read, if they would read, they could understand. We've already noticed what the sources of religious authority are not, so let's notice what it is. It is from heaven. We know Jesus is at the right hand of God with all authority. Notice Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so, since Christ is the head of the church, we have an understanding that we are obligated to adhere to all things by which he has commanded us. Jesus is the head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If I were to speak on a subject at any time and you find something I say to not be in alignment with the words of Christ or the prophets, what we understand is, is he's the head of the church. He appointed the apostles who spoke by, by inspiration, and everything they say is correct. And so if I were to say anything that would dis 
agree with that, guess who's incorrect? It would be me. I would be the one that is incorrect. So again, you go back to some of the topics that people will talk about today. How many people disputing baptism being necessary? Again, Christ is the head of the church. Christ says you need to believe and be baptized to be saved. Mark 16, 16. Who are you going to believe? I can tell you you don't need to do it. How about, how about this? I'll tell you you just need to say the sinner's prayer, and you can believe me, or you can read Jesus' words in Mark 16, 16, where he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who do you believe? If you're believing that the sinner's prayer is acceptable, guys, you have a problem with biblical authority. In Christ's absence, he's not here to talk to us. His, his uh, apostles, the prophets, uh, the first century by miraculous gift, they're not here to teach us. And so in their absence, the New Testament writings, they are our source of authority. That's why Paul says, when ye read, ye may understand, right? How many of you guys have ever looked at a, uh, like a Haynes manual when you're working on a car? I know John's looked at manuals before. Uh, when I was putting in the shower at my house, they gave me instructions, albeit they were horrible. They did give me instructions. And I read it the first time, and guess what? It didn't quite make sense. I went back and I read it again. Still didn't quite make sense. Then I started trying to put it together in my mind and lay it out, and I went back to the instructions again. Finally, after reading it enough times, it made sense. Guys, if you go back and read Mark 16, 16 enough times and you believe that Jesus is speaking by inspiration and authority, you're going to believe what he says. And so the New Testament is today our source of authority. Let me give you a side note. We don't live under the Old Testament. You look at groups today such as the Seventh-day Adventists. You look at the Messianic Jews, and they go back and they try to take the old law, the law of Moses, and they, were trying to, they try to intermingle it in with the law of Christ. Guys, this isn't anything new. We had the same problem taking place in the first century. You had the Galatians who were trying to take the law of Moses and try to intermingle it into Christianity. Notice what he tells the Galatians. They didn't understand biblical authority. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Let me pause. Most people who read that verse do not read it in context. They have no idea what is even taking place with the church in Galatia, and they go, hey, look, we're not under any law today. You can do whatever you want. He is speaking directly of the law of Moses. They were trying to intermingle the old law with the new law. Guess what he tells them? Ye are fallen from grace. You've deviated from the path of the actual system of faith. You're trying to come up with your own system of faith by intermingling different laws. Listen to Hebrews 8.13. In that he set a new covenant, that's our New Testament, the perfect law of liberty, the law of Christ, he hath made the first old. What was the first covenant? That was the law of Moses, right? He goes on, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now a lot of people, you begin to talk about the fact that we don't, we don't live under the Old Testament. They begin to say, so you don't believe the Old Testament's inspired. Absolutely not. They're wrong. I believe it's inspired. I know you believe it's inspired. It pointed to the Messiah coming. It pointed to the fact that the church was going to be established. But as we've noted, guys, we're not meeting on Saturday with a bull on fire out here in the front yard. Because we don't live under the law of Moses. We don't have to have Levitical priests leading worship today. Any of us men can stand up and we can lead worship. Listen to Colossians 2.14 for those who struggle with this. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, the new covenant, the new testament came into effect. The old law of Moses was gone. You no longer live by that system. 
people, we see people today in outrage when we see the uh, Ten Commandments being taken away. I'm fine with the Ten Commandments being posted, but I also understand I don't live under the Ten Commandments. Nine of those were reiterated by Christ. The one that was not was to worship on the Sabbath. We worship on the first day of the week. Why do people get so angry when you begin to talk about the fact that they don't live under the law of Moses anymore? Guys, they do not understand biblical authority. And again, we are talking about the most basic, fundamental things that for most of us here, we say, Sean, I understand these things. You do, but just like when I go to work and someone asks me a question, and I've memorized, I, I've got lists, I've memorized, I know what they're supposed to be doing. Guys, you know what? Sometimes I even forget what's on my list. I made the list. I made the audit sheets. I know what's on there. Sometimes even I forget. And guess what? Sometimes they actually ask questions that I've even forgot. I have to go back, and guess what I have to do? i got to go back and read from the source. And when I read, I can understand, and then I can relay the information. It is no different than how a sermon's prepared. I read, I understand it, and then I find out what's the best way that I can relay it. The best way is really to just quote book, chapter, and verse. So with that being said, we don't live under the Old Testament anymore, and also there is no modern-day revelation. There's a church right down the road that says that they have apostles and prophets. No, they don't. They don't. We have talked about the requirements for one to be an apostle. There is nobody down there who understands that, and there's no one that meets those requirements. Furthermore, listen to Jude 1.3 and use some logic, use some common sense. Jude writes, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write of the law of the common salvation, that's how all people were saved. It's a common method. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, the Christians. Had the faith already been given in its completion in the first century according to Jude 1.3? The answer is yes. He says that they should contend for the faith which was once delivered, that is, past tense. And what he is saying is, is everything that is needed to be known for man to be saved has already been given. People in the first century were dying in a saved position. If people in the first century had everything they needed to be faithful and to eventually go to heaven, do we today have all of that information also because we have the inspired writings? Yes, we do. Now let's take it a step further. Let's say that Larry claims to be a prophet over there. Why would, why would God, when he's already revealed the entire New Testament faith, why would he reveal additional information? First of all, that contradicts Jude 1.3 because that would show us that the entire faith had not been given if he's telling him something different. And second of all, do you guys think it would be fair for God to speak to Larry and give him additional information which would aid in his ability to be saved, but refrain and not give us that information? Well, of course that wouldn't be fair. Do every one of us have an equal chance to go to heaven? Yes, guess why? We all have the exact same information. What information is that? It is the faith that was once delivered in the first century. When those apostles died off and those prophets who had the miraculous gifts died off, that ceased, there was no more revelation. Furthermore, let's ask this. If people are receiving revelation today, why are we not adding it to our inspired scriptures? Because there's nobody getting revelation today. That's a whole other topic. We've dealt with that very deep, usually when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. 
but we are not receiving modern day revelation there are no prophets walking around there are no apostles I have had people tell me that they receive prophecy right they're guided by the Holy Spirit if a man is guided literally by the Holy Spirit he should be able to quote the entire New Testament for me if not why not does the Holy Spirit know what words he wrote if he is guiding a man and a man claims to be guided directly by the Holy Spirit I want him to quote book, chapter, and verse. I can quote a lot of verses, but I can't quote the entire Bible. The Holy Spirit is not working directly through me, otherwise I would be able to. The apostles could. The apostles could do it all. They could speak it all by inspiration. Let's talk about the nature of religious authority. This is where we began to get some pushback, especially from so-called scholars. I'm going to use the acronym, call it CENI, C-E-N-I. Let me say this before I go any further. What does that acronym stand for? Things that we use every day in our life. Commands. We get that. Examples. Necessary inference. C-E-N-I. Let me say this. If you are ever studying biblical authority and in the article you see someone talking about C-E-N-I, in advance I will tell you most likely they are going to attack biblical inspiration. They're going to attack the way to understand the Bible. Let's break it down in a very simple way. Nobody, nobody who is using common sense uses the acronym. I'm just telling it to you in advance because I want you to be on the lookout. So let's look at it. Commands, examples, and necessary inference. Jesus used those things all the time. We use those same things all the time in our personal lives. We don't think anything about it. We understand it. So let's look at all these three commands, examples, and necessary inference by looking at the Lord's Supper. This is going to help us to get an understanding of the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about the command. Most people don't struggle with this. 1 Corinthians 11.24, we have Paul reiterating to the church in Corinth the command regarding the Lord's Supper. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now some may say, well, the apostles and stuff, they were supposed to do it, but the other people weren't. Well, I'm going to go back by memory. Uh, let's go over to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What was one of those things? To partake of the Lord's Supper. Are we commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper? Absolutely we are. Most people don't struggle with that, do they? Now here's the next question. We've been commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper, but when do we do it? Well, let's go back and see if we have a binding example. Acts 20, verse 7. I think most of you are familiar with this passage. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread... Let me pause. How many of you here are a disciple of Christ? Yeah, me too. All right. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread... What's the first day of the week? Sunday. When did people who claim to be disciples come together to break bread? Sunday. That's all Christians. Paul preached unto them. All right, this is a worship setting. We've got the Lord's Supper taking place. We've got preaching taking place. Goes on, ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. I'm not going to go that long. But what we have here, we have an apostle uh, here with them present in worship. Do you guys think the apostles knew what was mandated and when it was mandated for worship to take place? Well, absolutely they did. 
We have a binding example. We've seen the command to partake of the Lord's Supper. We've seen the example of when they did it. I mean, another side note, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, we also see that they laid in store, guess when that was? On the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Are we seeing binding examples for when worship took place? Yes, first day of the week. Guess what? The Bible Bible is silent on other days. The Bible never says they worshiped on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Do you think that gives you the authority to worship on those days with the five acts of worship? We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. The answer is no. Let's cover the other one. So we've covered command. We've covered example. What about inference? Well, what do I infer? Well, I already touched on that. We see the command to partake of the Lord's Supper. We see the timing that is stated. And then we see who is partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is disciples. I therefore infer that because I am a disciple of Christ and because he gave a command to those who are disciples and said when to worship as disciples, I infer that I am included in that group. You guys see how that works? We do it all the time in our personal life. If my wife's at the door with one of my daughters and she says we're going to the store, I infer she's talking about her and whoever's with her, right? So we understand inference. Now, there are a lot of people today who do not think that inference is necessary. Let me prove that it is. How many of you who are here right now today, go ahead and raise your hand when I ask the question. How many of you who are here today believe that if you are faithful and you die in a faithful state, you will go to heaven? I want one of you guys to show me your name in the Bible. Mine's not in there. So you infer that your name is among the righteous when you do the things that Christians, when they were commanded and they have examples, when you do those things, you infer your name is included. All right, we've completely stamped out the idea that necessary inference is not included. We've shown commands are necessary. We've shown there are binding examples, and we've shown that necessary inference is, it's, it's necessary to understand the scriptures. And again, for people watching this, when you read scriptures and it's talking about an apostle, don't infer you're the one who is being spoken to. It's directed to the apostles. Now, let's talk about the extent of religious authority. This is going to be interesting. I want to point something out you guys have never seen before. The Bible includes both specified and unspecified means of carrying out God's will. Right? Go to Genesis 22.2. Here we have the command for Abraham to go and offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, within this command, we have both specified and unspecified means. Now, this part's not going to be unusual to you. Follow along with me and look for the specified and the unspecified. You might not notice them, but I'll tell you what they are. Listen to Genesis 22, 2. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this right here, but let me make a side point for anybody who's watching this who's never studied this account. There are a lot of people who are saying, how in the world could Abraham follow God's command to go out and to sacrifice his son? He had already been given the seed promise. The Messiah is going to come through his seed line. He had an understanding that Even if he had killed his own son, God has the ability to bring him back from the dead. I'm not going to go back and cover all the verses. It's covered in the New Testament. But he's going to follow God's commands. Do you think about how hard 
this sacrifice would have been. Notice the things that are specified in the command. He is told to go to Moriah. That is a very specific command. He is told to sacrifice. Notice the things not specified. When he was told to go to Moriah, was he told how to go there? No, the commands go to Moriah. But he wasn't told how to go, so he could either walk or he could take a donkey. He was told to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. What are you going to need for a burnt offering? Well, first he's going to need Isaac. But if you're going to burn a sacrifice, you need wood, right? So here's the question. Is he going to take it with him? Is he going to get it there? I guess it's going to depend on the landscape. Let me touch on a side point here. And this is the part many of you have never seen before. Many have never noticed when they go back and they look here at the example of Abraham, this helps to show that there is no support whatsoever for adding instruments to our singing. Let me say that again. Abraham and his willingness to carry out this sacrifice shows that within the New Testament there is no support for adding instruments to our singing. And you may be going now, well, how in the world, Sean, are you going to jump from a sacrifice of Isaac over to our singing? I mean, these are totally, two totally different things. How would you make that connection? Well, let's notice. So Abraham is told to go and sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. That is a very specific command. Later you will learn under the law of Moses there were various types of sacrifices, none of which could be changed, and all of which had to be carried out exactly as they were commanded. Now let's ask a logical question. He is told to burn Isaac as a sacrifice. Do you think Abraham could have offered a different sacrifice to God other than the one he commanded and still be acceptable to God? Let me put it this way. God told him to go and burn Isaac as a sacrifice. Do you think he could have changed that sacrifice and just burned his dog? Would that have pleased God to change the sacrifice? The answer is no. You're probably still going, what does this have to do with instrumental music? Go over to Hebrews 13, 15. We're told to sing with a very specific command, right? And a lot of people are going, well, singing is a whole lot different than offering up a sacrifice to God of Isaac. Uh, as Abraham was told. Listen to Hebrews 13, 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. What kind of sacrifice is this? Not a burnt sacrifice, I'll tell you that. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. A very specific sacrifice for the Christian, especially within worship. It is singing, right? Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. Our praise of singing is a sacrifice. And you may say, why is singing a sacrifice? Praising God in the way he commands takes personal sacrifice. And I am sure that Abraham understood this regarding the command to sacrifice Isaac. And yet to change God's command in any regard to make that sacrifice more appealing to us removes the very fact that it is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice when you do the sacrifice the way God commanded the sacrifice to be carried out. But if you're going to change it in any way to make yourself feel better or to please you, you've, you've removed the very fact that it's even a sacrifice. So just as he couldn't change his sacrifice of Isaac by substituting his dog, a Christian today cannot change the sacrifice of the praise of our lips by modifying that sacrifice and adding something to it, like instruments. You may say, oh, I never noticed that before. Well, guess what, guys? When we read, we may understand. Let's notice the application of religious authority. New Testament commands, examples, and necessary inferences are binding unless loosed by heaven. Our reference verse would be Matthew 16, 19. That's not in your notes. 
Here's what I mean. When there is no method, when there is no time, and there is no place specified, then I can infer that the command is not specific. Let me go back to the example. Uh, I'm going to use Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. All right, so the command is to teach. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever was commanded of them. Right. So we continue and look at the same passage. Break it down in a nutshell. Go and teach. But he doesn't tell us how to go and teach. I can take a bicycle. I can ride a horse. I can take an airplane. I can walk. And when I decide to teach, I can use just my Bible. If I don't have a Bible with me, I can do it just by memory, by quoting the verses as best I can. Or I could do it by video. I could do it through a streaming platform, right? Those have been left up to me. The command was to go and to teach. Very specific commands, but unspecified in the way to carry them out. Some people try to say, well, that's how music is. No, that's not. The command is to sing. And I can carry that out in any way that I want. I can carry it out with four people. I can carry it out with 20 people. I can carry it out with 500 people, but I'm no longer just singing when I modify the command, all right? So the New Testament does command through examples and inferences, uh, and commands examples and inferences, and it's binding unless it's been loosed. When there is one method, when there is one method or time or place, and it is given in an example, and yet, and yet it is not seen in other examples, what we understand is it's an indifferent matter. Let me give you one example. Going over to Acts chapter 1, I have seen this. Maybe you guys have not, uh, but I have seen people try to bind this. I gave you the example of a, of a, a binding scripture. We could look at like uh, Acts 20 verse 7 when we, we see when worship takes place. Let's look at a non-binding example. And many of you probably have seen this at some point where people try to bind this. Acts 1.13. And when they were come in, they, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew uh, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zeltus or Simon the Zealot and Judas the brother of James. All right, so you've got the church. Uh, they're not yet the church, but you've got those who will become the church. You've got them meeting in an upper room, right? And you've got people going around today teaching that if you do not meet in an upper room, it is unscriptural. Well, guys, this is in Acts 1. The church doesn't even come into existence until Acts chapter 2. This is not Christian worship taking place. Now, for us, we don't have to have a conscience issue. We worship in an upper room. Have you guys ever noticed that? No conscience issues for us because we do worship in an upper room. But it's not binding. That's why we're out here in the parking lot today. But I have seen people take this and try to bind the fact that Christians are to meet in an upper room. And here's the question. In all the other examples, which many of them include apostles who are present, where they are worshiping not in an upper room, why is no one rebuked for sinning? Because they're not sinning. There's no binding example that we have to meet in an upper room. We can meet outside. We can meet by the river. We can meet in the parking lot. We can meet anywhere. Is a binding room acceptable? Yes. An upper room acceptable? Yes, but it's not a binding example. The New Testament specifies directly things like kind of music, right? What kind of music? Singing. Is it singing with instruments? No, it's just singing. Is it instrumental music? No, it's just singing. We get that. The New Testament specifies directly things like the organization of the church. There are elders and deacons when and if they are qualified. Same thing with ministers. They are to be preaching the word, right? Not philosophy, 
It's not supposed to be some feel-good speech. It makes you leave without some more understanding of what you're reading. The New Testament specifies directly all of our acts of worship. But the New Testament also authorizes without specifying things like, how about our Bibles? I don't know, I don't know which versions you guys are all using. I doubt it, but is everyone here re using a King James Version? Probably not. You guys know why I use the King James Version? It's not the best version. That's the one I memorized. I don't want to go back and memorize another version. I, I like the King James. But could you use a modern literal version? Yeah, you could. If it's accurately translated, could you use a New American Standard Version or the American Standard Version? You could. The Bible authorizes that. The, the point is, is you want to have an accurate translation, right? Don't be using the message. Don't be using paraphrases. The Bible authorizes without specifying things like Bible classes. Are we required to, to continue to grow uh, in the Word? Absolutely. Can that take place during Bible classes? Yeah, but you've got people out teaching Bible classes are not scriptural. The Bible authorizes without specifying things like the building. The Bible, we see that we are to meet together. And we don't have to meet in a building, but guys, it gets cold in Michigan. Aren't you glad we have a building? But we could sit in the snow, but it does authorize a building because we have to have a place to meet. How about multiple cups? Got people have a problem with those who don't use one cup, right? Well, even Jesus told them to take the cup and divide it. But here's the point. The Bible authorizes without specifying. If we wanted to use a big old pitcher and every one of us wanted to suck a little bit out of that one pitcher and pass it on around, probably not a good idea during the COVID-19 lockdown, right? But could we do it? Yeah. Or if we want to use two cups, it's okay. If we want to use eight, or if we want to bring our own like we did today, if that's still acceptable, yes. We can go down and do a study on it. I'm not going to. Now let's spend a little bit of time as we draw this, start winding down. Let's talk about the silence of the scriptures. This is a part regarding biblical authority the majority of people simply do not understand. Let me say this as we start to get into this. Silence never, ever, ever, and if you're not quite sure, ever authorizes. You may say, well, I'm not quite sure you, I understand what you're saying. Go on over to Hebrews 7.14. Hebrews 7.14, and we're going to notice... That the silence of the scriptures never authorizes. Notice what the Hebrews writer writes, again, by inspiration. He says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Talking about those who could be priests under the law of Moses. Why didn't, why didn't the law of Moses go back and say, Those in the tribe of Judah cannot be priests? Those in the tribe of Benjamin cannot be priests. Those, he didn't have to go through all the tribes and say, those people can't be priests. And you know why? Because he'd already told who could be a priest. And so just because the Bible is silent on the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and all the other tribes, that doesn't permit them to be priests because he had already said who was eligible to be a priest. There's a lot of verses. I just picked one that's so easy you can't mess it up. Listen to Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. The priests, the Levites, let me pause. Who's eligible to be a priest if under the law of Moses, according to that verse? The Levites. Who are the only people who could be priests under the law of Moses? The Levites. You can't have a guy in the tribe of Judah go, you know what, the law of Moses doesn't say anything about me being a priest. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that you can't be in the tribe of Judah and be a priest. You're right, it doesn't say that. It says who can be a priest. That disqualifies everything else. 
Let's go back to singing for a second. When the Bible says sing, what does it disqualify? Everything else. Jesus doesn't have to go back and say, or the apostles go back and say, you can't do this or this or this, but you, you can do that. All he has to say is, is you can do that. Let me, let me make it even simpler. My parents give me a $5 bill. They tell me to go down and to buy a loaf of bread. I come back with 10 cents because I bought a loaf of bread. I bought 10 candy bars. I bought me, you know, one of them uh, Red Bulls, whatever. And my dad says, why are you only giving me a dime back? And I said, you didn't tell me I couldn't. And guess what I would get in return? I would have got the bell right there, right? My dad would have said, when I told you to buy bread, I limited you to bread. You get that, right? You didn't say I couldn't. I didn't have to. As the one in authority, I said, this is what you can do. That, that it gets rid of everything else, right? We get that when we read the scriptures. The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi. Let me help you out with some context Context here. When they came into the promised land, all the tribes got their own land. But guess who didn't? The priests did not. He says, They shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. And therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he hath said unto them. They didn't need land to go out and plant crops and all that. They were going to get their uh, get their stuff from the, from the offering, from the sacrifices. God was going to provide for them. So they didn't need to have any land. But who were the only people that could live according to this way and receive those sacrifices? The Levites. Even though he never said anything about the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or any of the others. Now, for those who say, well, the Bible doesn't say that I can't. Let me ask you this question. Does it say you can? The Bible doesn't say that I can't use instruments. Anywhere can you give me a verse where it says you as a New Testament Christian can? No. There's, no. there's not one verse for that. We get that. Listen to Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. This is going to really help to nail it down for us. Most of you are familiar with this. This is, again, talking about the silence of the Scriptures. That idea of God didn't tell me I couldn't does not work out very well here for Nadab and Abihu. And these are Levitical priests. These are the sons of Aaron. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord. Why was it strange? Notice this. Which he commanded them not. For every group meeting today who is singing with instruments, you're offering strange worship to God. Why? Because he didn't command you to do it that way. He, offered, he told you to sing. You change in any way, or you add something of which you have not been commanded, you're doing exactly what Nadab and Abihu did here. Notice, and it goes on, verse 2. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, remember, this is Aaron's sons that just got struck dead. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, or near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron, his sons, just died, and Aaron held his peace. Why? Because God was not being sanctified because they were offering worship in a way which God had not commanded them. And God killed them for doing what they had done. They could have said, well, he didn't tell me I couldn't do it. He didn't have to. He told you exactly how you were to offer the fire. But you did it in a way different than he told you to do it. 
And God said, I will be sanctified in them that come near me. You think you can gather and change worship and make singing into singing plus instruments? Remember, God will be sanctified by all those who want to come near him. You think you can change any aspect of worship? Remember, God will be sanctified for all that will come near him. And look what happens to Nadab and Abihu. And remember Aaron, their father? He held his peace. You know why? Because he knew God wasn't being sanctified. He knew that they were disobeying God by doing it differently than God had told them. What was the problem with Nadab and Abihu if we boil it down into a nutshell? They didn't understand biblical authority. They didn't think. They didn't think. That's the whole problem. Ask yourself this. Do most religious groups today base their worship on commands, examples, and necessary inference from the scriptures? No, they don't. They're just like Nadab and Abihu who are offering worship which he commanded them not. I know for most of us, what we look at today is considered very, very basic. And yet there are people, I assure you, who will be watching this online who have never had anyone break down biblical authority. And guys, let's remember this, Ephesians 3, 4, most important verse we read of the day, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Why is it important to understand biblical authority? Because we can understand when we read, and yet you need to understand biblical authority to understand what it is you're reading. I hope you learned a little bit here as we've looked at this topic this morning. As I draw this to a close, the most important thing is for anyone who is here who is not yet a Christian, won't spend a lot of time on it, I'll just cite some verses. Please, for anyone watching this, uh, if you want to know how to become a Christian, go back and look at all the New Testament conversion accounts. They're all the same. You have someone teaching them who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he came to establish his church, that he shed his blood for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. Guys, if you don't believe that, you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. You need to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. You need to have an understanding that he is the head of the church, right? And because you have an understanding, which means you need to be taught about sin, because you have an understanding of sin, you need to repent like Jesus commands, Luke 13, 3 and 5. And you need to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then you need to be baptized in water by immersion for the remission of sins. Jesus mandates it, Mark 16, 16. Remember, he's the head of the church. He's the one with all authority. And Jesus says you need to believe and be saved, or be, believe and be baptized to be saved. And when you do exactly as you've seen in the conversion accounts in our New Testament, and when you've obeyed, remember this, Luke 6, 46, Why call you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? When you do what the Lord has said, he will add you to his church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. That's how easy it is to become a Christian. It is no more complicated than the guy who's telling you to say the sinner's prayer. It takes a few more minutes to study, and it takes a few more minutes to get in the water. Uh, that's as simple as it is. And you'll not find any conversion account anywhere in our Bible where somebody was saved by faith only or waited a month. Let me say this for anyone watching this. When you want to get baptized, when you realize that you are in a state of sin, we don't put baptisms off for 24 hours or 48 hours or for a month. That's what they did to me when I went. I was going to the community church. I wanted to become a Christian. They said, well, say the sinner's prayer. We'll get baptized in a month. You show me that in the Bible. Why was Paul told in Acts 22, 16, and 17, Arise, why tarryest thou? Guys, if you die and you have not obeyed the gospel, you are not going to heaven. So the very minute you understand that, you submit to the commands and you obey and you are immersed in water for the remission of sin. 
When people tell me they want to get baptized, I say, I'll meet you at the building right now. Let's go, if I can get there. Right? It's that important. If you're here as a Christian, if you're struggling in your walk, maybe there's some things you don't understand, or if you've fallen short of the standard of God, please repent of it. Turn, again, walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. And if there's a way that we can help you in any way, uh, whether to assist you either in obeying the gospel or in some other manner, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.